but let's pray and let's thank the Lord for our day. But uh, also want to pray for uh, the new moms, Raquel and Jenna. Jenna back there now? Did she go back? Okay. We'll pray for her as well, but thank you for the new moms. Lord, in the name of Jesus, thank you for today. We praise you for who you are, and we praise you, Lord, for what you've done in us and through us. And today, yet another day, where it's not just a come here and, and hear the word and go home and, and, and just it's just sort of normal, but Lord, we want it to be different than other Sundays. We want it to be different than other Sundays because we are wanting to meet with you and what you have to say to us. And what you would share with us today through your spirit, may it be real to us, Lord, and made real to us by your spirit so we could apply it in our lives. Lord, there's so much in this text. There's so much of these little four verses we'll read tonight. We pray that they will have an effect on all of us to the point where we would go out of this place eager and ready to put it into action because that's what we've been called to do. Lord, we ask you this morning that through the pages of this book, you would make us more like Jesus as the words come out of, of our, in our minds and in our hearts. And let them be, uh, Lord, a transforming power that will make us more like you. Lord, we eagerly await your return. But until then, Lord, we are continually being busy about your business, about your work. And so help us, Lord, today as we desire to be more like you and love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We got there last week. We uh, scratched the surface on Galatians, and we are not going to get any further than verse 10 today because there's so much of it that we have to discuss. Let us sow that we may reap. Let us sow that we may reap. And Paul is going to address a few things to sow and to reap. We may not think of them this way, but there are sowing and reaping. Let's read together verse 6 of chapter 6 of Galatians. And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches the word. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from his own flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not, be, and let us not lose heart. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then... While we have an opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith, meaning believers. Almost done with Paul's letters. There's about eight verses after this, which we'll take on in the next few Sundays. We have a, a wonderful program next Sunday, so we will finish right at the last Sunday of the, of the, of the year, which will be perfect. I didn't time that. That was right on. Finish Galatians on the last Sunday of the year. But Paul is going to address things here in regards to walking in the Spirit. Remember, there were two walks of the Spirit. There was your own personal walk, which you have to do. You walk with the Spirit, and you put to death the deeds of the flesh or the desires of the flesh. You are to crucify them through the same cross in which Jesus died on the cross for us. It's the same cross that we are to climb up ourselves, pick it up, follow him, and our desires the fleshly desires, the lust thereof, needs to die with Christ. The old nature, 
The Bible calls it the flesh, but we know we're not talking about your physical body. We are referring to human nature, the original human nature, the flesh, what the flesh is capable of, what the flesh knows by nature what to do. And there's a whole list in chapter 5, starting in verse 19. And we read about that last uh, couple Sundays ago. The deeds of the flesh. This is what the flesh, the natural person, would love to do. We are also told to walk together in the spirit. Walk together in the spirit. And what that means is not just your own private walk, but walking together with other believers. And we read that last week. By the way, if it is getting hot here, uh, it's not me having menopause. You could actually turn on the air conditioning. It's not illegal. It's getting really hot up here. And uh, we don't want it to turn into, and, uh, oh, yeah, I forgot to put the phone thing up there. Yeah, Uh, make sure. (laughs) If you put the air on, we will be in much better shape. Verse 6, let remember that those who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches the word. Paul is going to talk about three things about sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. The first one is in verse 6 regarding teaching and teachers. The next one is in verse 7, your character. And finally, in verse 9 and 10, sowing and reaping by doing good to others. Three types of sowing. The first one has to do with teaching and teachers. That's in verse 6. The second one is with your own character, verse 7. And finally, verse 9 and 10 have to do with actions, sowing actions to others. And there's a very specific thing about others that we're going to look at. It's not just others, which is true. It's a big circle. But there's a very specific circle in which the Lord wants us to focus on first. And we'll get to that in a moment. But let's deal with the first one. Verse 6, those who teach and those who are taught. This is embarrassing because I never would have picked this verse to actually teach on. But when you go through the whole Bible, you end up with verses that you may not be comfortable teaching. But that's why we go through the whole Bible because there's things that you're uncomfortable that I'm uncomfortable with. But we still have to deal with it. Here's one of them. There is a responsibility for believers to take care of those who teach God's word. And I'll explain what that means. The word of faith movement... And the prosperity gospel has really destroyed this verse. And by their behavior and by their actions, they have made a mockery of the true teachings of Scripture. And, of course, the uh, salubrious salary that they have, the, the, uh, basically the abuse of the sheep, the abuse of uh, basically uh, taking money from people and abusing the sheep and fleecing the flock has made this people very skittish about even talking about money in church. But we have dealt with that in Galatians as well as Philippians. Paul has encouraged both the church in Philippians as well as Corinthians as well as Galatians that they are to be active in doing something very interesting, taking care of one another. There's a responsibility. Last week we talked about that you have a responsibility to yourself. You have a responsibility to others to bear one another's burdens. You have a responsibility to go get the believer that is struggling in sin and pick them up and and prop them up. There is a responsibility now. To teachers. There's a responsibility to teachers. And what that means is when in the, within the fellowship, when you have teachers, people that expound God's word, uh, you have a responsibility 
to share with them, as they share with you spiritual things, you are to share with them of the physical things. Meaning this, a teacher sows to you spiritual things. He sows to you of the spiritual word of God, giving to you what the Bible says. And there is a responsibility for believers to sow in the teachers of not just spiritual things, but material things. Meaning that if a person is called to teach and that person has a calling in his life to teach and that his main responsibility within the fellowship, then those in the fellowship that recognize that are to supply to that individual or individuals material things as they can share their material things with those who share with them spiritual things. And Paul calls it a partnership. We'll see in a moment. There are two dangers with this. There are two dangers with this. Remember, it's part of the body of Christ. Part of the body of Christ. Teachers are gifts unto the body of Christ. A teacher is not a teacher unto himself. Well, that would be very boring if I myself would just teach to myself. Teaching works within the context of the fellowship. Make sense? It works within the context of the fellowship. So does your gift, by the way. Your gift works within the context of the fellowship. No man is a gift to himself, unto himself. So you have a gift by God, given to you by the Lord, spiritual gifts. It is to be used within the context of a fellowship. That's the only way it works. Edify one another, encourage one another. You couldn't do that on your own. So Christians that remain alone by choice are not following the word of God. They're not following God's will. They're not following the scripture. They are unto themselves what they would consider themselves a fellowship unto themselves, which it doesn't work. Uh, there's no unity. There's no encouraging. There's no uh, propping up each of each other. But let's continue. Two dangers. One danger is when a pastor or a teacher thinks himself or people put him up as a pope. What do I mean as a pope? Um, the Catholic Church has one pope. Unfortunately, the Christian Church has many popes. Meaning that because an individual said it, because a teacher said it, that's it. That settles it. I don't even have to read the Bible. I just know he's right. And so many have gone in the wrong direction with that thinking. A pastor is not infallible. A teacher is not infallible. They are being sanctified just like you today. I'm being sanctified just like you by the very word that is being taught today. It is as much for me as it is for you. The only difference has been rattling around my mind for, you know, for a few days now, and I'm more accountable to it because I'm telling you what it says. I should be able to put it into action in a lot more concentrated effort than you because you're hearing it for the first time. I've known it for a few days now. I'm just a little bit ahead because we're teaching this. But a teacher's not infallible. People prop up teachers to the point where they say, that's it. You know, he said it. That must be true. It must be right. And nobody goes home and checks it out. I hope today you go home and you read again Galatians 6 to 10. I hope you read it before you got here. And I hope you read it after you leave and say, mm, I don't know. It could be this. It could be that. And that is a good thing. It is a good thing when we hear feedback. Now, I always talk about feedback. It's don't give me your favorite opinion about the verse. So don't get somebody else's opinion and tell me this is your opinion. Tell me what you think the verse says and we can discuss it in Christian love. If, you, if we disagree, but we ought to be in line to question 
and whether or not this is in the Bible. Now, if it's in the Bible, it's in the Bible. If it's not in the Bible, we should question it. Now, the teachers, as well as the hearer, are being sanctified by the word of God. So the teacher is nowhere to be propped up as an infallible individual. That's one error. The second error is when the Christian says, I don't need a teacher. I don't need a fellowship. I don't need anybody. I'm infallible to myself. I just need, you know, I just have the Bible. I have the Holy Spirit, and I have myself, and that's all I need. And I've heard that so many times. It's like chalk. It's like nails on a chalkboard. Because what they're saying is, I know I'm infallible. I'm the only one that knows the real thing about the Bible, and I don't need anybody else's opinion about it. And that may sound spiritual, but what it is is just a lot of pride. I don't want to be part of any fellowship. I don't want to hear any teacher. It's just me and the Lord. Now, the Bible tells us, and going back to this, teachers were gifted to the, to, by, the, by the Lord to the body. When Jesus ascended into heaven, Paul said in Ephesians 4, he gave gifts unto men, prophets, <coughs> teachers, evangelists, right, pastors, that they would edify the church, that they would be encouragement to the body as equipping the body for the good work that is to be done. That is the gifts of the Lord. Evangelists, prophets, teachers, all that is needed to equip the church is given by God. So the, the pastor, the teacher, the prophet, the evangelist are not just, you know, they're, they're not to be gifts unto themselves. They're to be used within the body, but they're gifts. So for, all, for one person to say, no, I don't want teachers. I myself has to uh, interpret the Bible only. Then it is to say, I don't believe what Jesus did. It's right. I don't believe that Jesus gave teachers. I don't believe that they're necessary. So I'm just going to teach myself. And uh, you know what that is? End up like a cult. It ends up in a cult, uh, mainly a cult of a man, the cult of a man. And so uh, we need each other. There are gifts. There are many gifts in this body. This is just one of them, and we're to be using them all. Now, there, are, uh, there are certain gifts that are to be displayed in more public, in a public setting. There are other gifts that are more private setting, but nonetheless, they're gifts. So two dangers, too many popes. In the Christian church, and then people think they're popes unto themselves. Danger, too dangerous. Those extremes are not taught in the scripture. God has ordained teachers, ordained in fellowship, and God has also given us an understanding of the word of God so that we can together bring across what the Bible really says. So be careful of the dangers. But it is embarrassing to think of this, that they must share. It says that they, uh, those who taught the word are to share and all things with him who teaches. The teacher is to help the hearer with spiritual things. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible means. And after spending hours studying, they should be giving you the understanding of what the scripture says. The believer, the student, or the hearer, is to now provide for the teacher that which the teacher needs because he's been studying the scriptures. He hasn't been at work like you have. It's been, he's been actively working in the scriptures. So now the responsibility of the fellowship, as Paul is reminding them, to do it. Now I'm going to say this, not for myself, but for other pastors and teachers that I know that labor in the scriptures. And for, uh, for some reason or another, they're not adequately taken care of. So on their behalf, uh, I, I will say this. There are wonderful men of God, teachers and Bible teachers and pastors that I know 
that labor very heavily throughout the week and give out the word that are not supported uh, as they ought to be, according to this verse. And what I mean by that is because we have created in the church two classes again, two classes. There's the clergy and there's the laity. Now, the Bible doesn't see it that way. The Bible says gifts. The Bible says gifts and offices are given to, depending on the gifts, you're supposed to uh, edify this, the, the congregation together. There are different gifts, there are different offices, but there's not this clergy and laity division. So what we've done, and I'm saying we as a Christian church, we've said, well, it's okay for the congregation to go find a job and work 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week or 30 hours a week and have a paycheck and have a hire and have a wage and things like that. But no, we can't have that for the clergy or the people that work in full-time Christian ministry because that's, that's, they're above that. You know, they're holy. They, they shouldn't be bothered with wages and hiring and, 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 and having a, you know, an hour rate. They should not be paid like that. They're too holy. And then we put them above in a pedestal as to say, let the, ones, let the laity worry about the wages and the hire. But the pastors and the Christian full-time ministers, they're not supposed to be bothered with that stuff. They don't need a wage. They don't need a hire. They don't need that. And so what happens, you separate the two, and guess what happens to the poor pastor, the poor evangelist, the poor ministry? They are put in a place where they can't even get a wage because the laity says, you're too holy to get a wage. Let us, you know, laity worry about the wage and the hire and the, and the rate per hour. You guys just do your thing there. And they're left without being taken care of. That's unfortunately, that's what happens. They're too holy to have a salary, people say. So what are they supposed to do? That's the question, right? So it's a false dichotomy. I've heard people say this, live by faith. And now this year I had to uh, step in a different realm of living by faith, but I've always lived by faith. So do you. I live by faith, you live by faith. Isn't the same thing. It's a false dichotomy to say that the pastor has to live by faith, but you have to live by work. It is a false dichotomy. Why do I say that? Because everyone lives by faith, wage or not, you are living by faith today and what God has provided, right? Um, Everyone, everyone here, uh, no matter what you do for work, a butcher, a baker, candlestick maker, a pastor, a teacher, evangelists, we all have a wage that it should be given based on the work that it's being done. That is not an unholy thing. And because we all live by faith, we're to support those who are in the business, and I say business, in the arena of supplying spiritual things, right? Missionaries, full-time evangelists, pastor teachers, right? Um, there are eight times in the scriptures. Here's one of them. There's about eight times in the New Testament, sorry, eight times in the New Testament, there may be more, where the Bible says, yes, teachers, uh, teachers, evangelists, full-time ministers are to receive a compensation for the work that they do and the spiritual things. And here's a passage from Timothy, 1 Timothy. Paul's quoting the Old Testament and he's quoting Jesus. From Luke, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the labor is worthy of his wages. Jesus said that. The the labor is worthy of his hire. What you do for the Lord may vary. What you do for the Lord may vary. It may be different for you than what I do, but we work 
just as hard throughout the week. So on Sundays, we can share both the spiritual things and the material things that we have accumulated for that week. You went to work, I went to work. It might be different arenas, but the labor is worthy of his hire. And I don't agree with, you know, know, necessarily citing somebody just a figurehead, getting a big salary and doing nothing for the fellowship. What I mean is they're to be working just as hard as you do. They should be working just as hard as you do, uh, but in a different arena. So everybody has to live by faith. Now, if you want more on this, because continuing this, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Philippians 4, Luke 10. You want any more? If you wrote them down, you're good. They are scriptures that relate to Christian ministers. I mean, by me, my minister is servants. The word minister just simply means a servant. It's a fancy title. I know. It's, it's an old English term, minister. We think of it as some high and mighty degree. It is simply means a servant, a full-time Christian servant, uh, according to those passages. And there's more, even in the Old Testament, are to be taken care of by the body because they sow into spiritual things as well as they can share in the physical things that the body has. Now, this is not to say that those people have abused it. Of course they have abused it. But there are two dangers. Again, dangers. The danger is this. When you do this, a pastor can actually think, or a teacher, that this is his profession, meaning that they treat it like a job. They treat it like a job. That's a danger. Because they're getting paid, they do it for the money, for the retirement, for the pension. It's not a calling anymore. It's just a job. And when a pastor or a teacher or a full-time minister or a full-time servant or a missionary or whatever steps into that arena where he's now you doing it for the job or for the money, he's wrong. His heart's wrong. And he shouldn't be taking any more money if you're taking it as a job. The second danger is this. The second danger is that the congregation expects now, because they're given a wage and they hired somebody, now they expect to hear what they want to hear. That's the other danger. Because we paid you, we want to hear X, Y, Z. And if you don't do X, Y, Z, then we're not going to do it. Remember the old saying, he who, pays the, he who uh, pays the piper plays the tune? That's one danger that a congregation can get in. Because I paid you, you should, you should say what I want you to say. And that's wrong. Congregations should always hear what the Lord has to say to us. We have what he wants to tell us, what he needs to tell us, not what we want to hear. And that's the danger sometimes with those two things. A pastor can become motivated by money. Now here's his job. Eight to five, that's it. And also... The congregation can say, well, since we paid them, we control them. And those are two things that are wrong. If our, mo- if our motive is money, it's wrong. Well, the same thing for you. Same thing for you. If you tell me, Pastor, you should do this for Jesus, I would say, man, I hope you're doing it for Jesus when you go to work. And if you're doing it for the money, then you're also wrong. Because we both should be working for Jesus. Isn't that true? We both, when you go to work tomorrow, whatever name's on the building, Ignore it. Forget it. Uh, secondary. The first name, it should be Jesus. Gave you that job, signed you up for it, gave you the brains, gave you the tools, gave you the resources, gave you the experience. Okay, work for him. 
if now it becomes about the money and you're just watching the clock and going, all right, it's just enough, <laughs> and you're just watching the clock and watching the paycheck, then your heart's wrong. Just it would be a pastor to, to see that. Just if a pastor said, well, you know, I'm just collecting, you know, I just know where I have to go. I got golf during the week and you know, I got things to do. Then it, now it's not, about the, it's not about the Lord, it's about the money. Now, um, if the Lord tells us to live without a wage, live without a wage. If the Lord tells you live with the wage, live with the wage. Meaning that if the Lord tells you, don't receive a salary, don't receive a salary. If the Lord tells you receive a salary, receive a salary. That's according to the Spirit. That's being led of the Spirit. Live by faith? Yeah. Let's all try living by faith. (laughs) Let's all live by faith and be careful about the separation of clergy and laity and saying the pastor, oh, he doesn't need a wage. He's just a pastor. Uh, Well, what if I did that to your job, right? (laughs) Oh, he's just a teacher. He doesn't need a wage, right? And we could become separating the clergy and the laity and we forget that it's done for the Lord. Different arenas, different callings, different ministries, and of course, those are things are true, but we should all do it for the Lord. And Paul speaks of this. Look at verse 6. That they will share in all good things, meaning that there is a partnership. It's a partnership. The fellowship has said, myself aside from my daily routine that I used to do, my normal occupation, and I'm able to share with you what I've learned, what I, what I studied, what I did throughout the week. I'm able to share it uh, twice a week, three times a week, whatever the case may be. And therefore, when you come together, you've also worked. You've also have spent time, uh, maybe not in the same things, but we've all shared the same thing. I get to share with you spiritual things. We get to share in the physical things that you have accumulated for that week. It works together as a partnership. Now, that is what God's intention is. That's God's intention. Some people may disagree with it. There are people that I know that won't go to church. There are people today that don't go to church. They just want to stay in a home. They don't believe in pastors. They don't believe in elders. They don't believe in leaders. They don't believe in anything. And they're getting into a cult-like behavior. They don't believe any Christian pastor, minister, missionary, servant, whatever, should be paid. And that's up to the congregation to decide if the Lord wants us to do that or not. But they are vehemently against it. Unfortunately, they turn into cults most of the time. And uh, we want nothing to do with that. So now... That is what God's intention is, and enough is enough on that because it's quite embarrassing to talk about it for me because I don't necessarily like to dwell on those things. I let the Lord take care of those things, but we're studying the Bible. we got to read what it says. Verse 7. God passed that. Verse 7. Now you sowed into teachers. You are now going to sow into your character. Look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from his flesh reap corruption. But the one that sows to the Spirit shall shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Sowing to the flesh and sowing to the Spirit. My brothers and sisters, God is not mocked. You cannot fool God at all whatsoever in any way. If you think you can, you are, you have fooled yourself. It's, a, it's, it's basically, you're deluded. You believe in a lie that you can get away with wrong behavior and wrongdoing and expect nothing to happen to us. The consequences that the Bible gives are unbelievably terrifying to think that a person can go on with their wrong behavior and expect nothing to happen in their life and consequences. And they do this 
One reason they do this is because nothing happens right away. Oh, I did it. God wanted me not to do that. He could have stopped me. (laughs) He could have just let me right there. Boom, done. You're done. But he doesn't do that. God doesn't send his bills at the end of the week, does he? But there's a day of accountability. Just because he didn't send you the bill that week, it doesn't mean there's not an account to settle. But this isn't, so I'm going to give you the Greek definition of this. The Greek language says it much more funnier. In Greek, it says, no one can turn up their nose up to God and get away with it. That's literally the Greek where it says, no one, um, no one gets away with it. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. It literally is the idea you turn your, fit, your nose up to God and you say, ha ha, I did it. That's literally the Greek. That's it. Remember, it's not just the words, but how it's used and the emotion that comes across. You can turn up your nose to God and say, I got away with it. Because no one will ever be able to get away with that. With that statement, no one can be able to get away with it. Wrongdoing. It's a terrible self-deception. Paul says here, do not be deceived. Listen, you can deceive yourself about a lot of things. And this one thing is a deadly deception. To think to think that whatever you've been doing, whatever you're doing, does not have consequences, and to think that one day you'll not be able to give, you're not going to give an account, it is absolutely something of a delusional. It's like turning your nose up to God and saying, what are you going to do about it? We don't, we don't say it, but when we do it, right? This is an illustration from nature, by the way. It's an illustration from nature. What do you mean by nature? Uh, a farmer knows this. Somebody who works in agriculture knows this. Dad knows this. Right? You sow something, you're going to reap it. What have you sown is what you're going to reap. If you sow watermelons, you're going to reap watermelons. It doesn't matter what you think is going to come out. It's going to be come out exactly what you sowed. If you sowed melons, if you sowed cucumbers, whatever you sow, don't expect oranges to come out if you've been sowing watermelons. Don't expect grapes to come out if you've been sowing something different. It's going to come out what you've been sowing. Now it says this, don't be fooled, don't be deceived. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For one sows to his own flesh, from his own flesh shall reap corruption. The world knows this and it uses various terms, right? What comes around, what goes around comes around. Is that the way they describe it, right? Um, More modern, they say karma. More modern, they say karma. That's like a... Eastern influence, you know, religious Eastern influences in, in America. Karma, right? It's just basically whatever you did is going to come back to you. Now, the Bible says it much more clear. The illustration is from nature. You sow, you reap. You sow, and you are going to reap the consequences. Consequences just ahead. This is applies to nature, sowing and reaping, but it applies to the human nature. Paul says very clearly here, when you sow to the old life, the old behavior. I would like to take verse 8 and then draw an arrow and draw an arrow to verse 19 of the previous chapter. Look at that list. And if we've been sowing to that, that's what's going to come out. Now, this is very important. People ask, what about forgiveness? What about forgiveness? Isn't there forgiveness? Absolutely there is. A man can repent of his sins A man can be sorry to God and turn away from doing those things. However, forgiveness, and this is so important. I wish I learned this when I was younger. 
forgiveness does not wipe away the consequences right away or all the way. Eternal consequences, yes. Jesus uh, laid his life down. He hung on that cross to forgive me of my sins and the eternal consequences of that sin, which is hell and eternity. Those things, yes. But many times I've had to deal with temporary consequences, meaning on this life, I have had to deal with the consequences of my choices. Even though God forgave me. Even though God said, you are forgiven. Blessed is the man who God does not impute iniquity. doesn't count uh, sins anymore. He doesn't take into account what you did. He forgave it. Praise the Lord. If we confess it, repented of it, hallelujah. However, my friends, that does not take away the consequence. I can go speeding down a 35-mile-an-hour zone at 89 miles an hour, 90 miles an hour, Lord, that was wrong. I'm so sorry. But you know what? If that cop gave me a ticket, God is not going to pay my ticket. I am going to deal with the consequences of that. And if I did reckless driving, then I'm going to have a bigger consequence. It's the same thing for Christians. Christians don't get away with it because we're forgiven. We don't get away with it because we're forgiven. It removes the penalty, the eternal consequences, but not the immediate consequences, right? Consequences remain. And this is very important to remember. Christians, forgiveness does not take away the consequence. I know believers, wonderful believers, incredible, gifted believers in the Lord who did many, many drugs before they came to Christ. And they've been forgiven of that. Absolutely. But they pay the consequences in their physical body of what the damages of drug abuse did to them. God did not take that away from them. He could have, but he didn't. They have to bear the consequences of it. They're wonderful Christians, wonderful men of God, wonderful ladies in in the Lord, but they bear the consequences of what they did. Nobody gets away with it. The only reason why we're able to get away with the eternal consequences is because what Jesus did. He hung on that cross for me. But this is very true. Nobody gets away with it. If a Christian sins, he repents, relationship is restored, his consequences remain. One of the Best examples is from the Old Testament. Best examples from the Old Testament. David, a man after God's heart. What a man. You read the Psalms and I go, man, I could never write anything like that. I could never express to God the things that this man expressed. I could never be as broken as this man because he really loved God. He had a heart for God. The Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. He had courage, humility, worship. Uh, the ability to uh, come with a sincere heart and repent. Amazing. Truly a man of God. But what happened to him? In times of weaknesses, he did not go to battle. It says he stayed home from the battle. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? He's supposed to go to battle, but he kind of wanted to have the weekend off or something. Now, we don't war against flesh and blood, right? In the New Testament, we don't war against flesh and blood, but against demonic spirits against the spiritual forces and the dark spiritual forces in high places, against demons, against Satan. We don't battle against flesh and blood. In the New Testament, this is not a battle against other people. It's a battle against our flesh and a battle against the spiritual darkness. When we fail to do that, when we fail to engage in the battle, we like to not be in the battle. We like to stay home. Things have consequences sometimes. David did not go to battle. He stayed home. I don't want to fight today. I don't want to fight against my flesh. I don't want to fight against the enemy. 
I just want to ease on out for this weekend. What happened to him? He went up to the terrace. He went up to the high place to see Bathsheba and there fell into sin. And then it just spiraled down completely. And you see the story from that moment on. In fact, you can go directly to that verse and see a slope of decline in Israel that they've never recovered. They've never recovered. Only when Jesus came, he was able to uh, bring about those who put faith and trust in him. That won't have a, it will not be recovered until Jesus comes back fully to restore the kingdom. But the kingdom of David split. His reign ended. His ministry failed. His family failed, corrupted. From that moment on, from that sin that he engaged in, you know, his family had all kinds of issues after that. They had all kinds of different marriages, different issues. His son held it against him. In fact, even his daughter was raped by one of his sons. It was unbelievable, the problems that he had. And I'll go back, and you can trace it back to that moment where he went and looked at that lady and said, I would like to have her. And he did. And he hid sin after sin, covered it with another sin, with another sin. And even Psalm 51, where he repents, and it's a wonderful psalm, and we ought to read it often, the, for, the forgiveness that God gave David, the repentance that he showed. But God never took away the consequences, did he? David, you're forgiven. David, that will not be held against you. Your sin against uh, Uriah, your sin against Bathsheba, your sin against the people of Israel, they'll be forgiven. But the consequences of what you did are going to last for a long time. The sword did not leave the land of Israel until David died. And even after that, the kingdom split with Solomon. Now, that was his fault. Solomon is accountable for his own action. But that which began the work by David, the consequences, ramifications beyond belief. I am sure if we had shown David Ten years down the road, David, if you go down this way, this is what's going to look like. He would have said, no way, man, I'm not going that way. But see, we don't even think about that when we're going into sin. We, only, we can't even think five minutes ahead. We can't even think ten minutes ahead, let alone years down the line of what could happen to our family, to our own lives, to our relationship with the Lord. David forgiven? Absolutely. Will we see him in eternity? Yes. The Lord blessed him tremendously. Did he suffer the consequences of this? Painfully so. Paul is 100% right, speaking by the Spirit, that if you do this, it'll have damaging consequences. Verse 8, Who sow to the flesh will reap of the flesh corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit shall reap of the Spirit eternal life. There's two harvests that you're going to have. Isn't that wonderful? Two harvests. The harvest is determined by what you were reaping earlier. Same thing in farming. You've been in farming before? Exactly right. You, you're going to get down the line at harvest time what you put into the ground at seeding time. What did you put in? Well, I put cantaloupes, cucumbers, tomatoes, apples. Guess what? You're going to get that. But if you're expecting something else, don't think you're going to get that. In fact, if you've been sowing to the flesh, Paul says, you're going to reap an entire harvest of corruption. Corruption, it is going to corrupt your life. It is going to have the consequences that we talked about. If you indulge in greed, lust, envy, things that are part of your old nature, and every time you do it, 
you will, you're reaping that, you're sowing that, I should say, you're sowing it, you're sowing it. Guess what's going to happen when it's time to harvest? It'll be corruption to your character. You will become what you sowed. You sow lust, you'll become lustful. You sow envy, you'll be envious. It's, it's simple enough to think about it, right? And, and nature teaches us. You sow an apple, you an apple tree. <laughs> you sow some watermelons, it's a watermelon. If you sow to the flesh, don't think it's a good thing that's going to come out of it. If you're involved in appeasing your flesh, if you're involved in trying to just give in to your flesh because it feels good, revenge is good, lust is good, and you think that no one's going to know what's going to happen, who cares, it's just my secret thing. Oh, my friend, you'll become that. And there'll be a harvest. But if you sow to the Spirit, look what it says, you will reap eternal life. You will reap eternal life. Now think about this. An interesting man came to Jesus. Mark chapter 10. Anybody remember this passage? He was rich, he was young, and he had authority. Don't you have that? <laughs> Sounds like Silicon Valley in today's age, right? Rich, young, and he had authority. But he missed something. He didn't have something. What didn't he have? Good teacher, how may I inherit eternal life? Same question. Paul is drawing this from Jesus' example. I would like to have eternal life. I want to inherit it. Jesus said, you call me good? No one's good by God. You recognize that I am good. You recognize that I am God. Therefore, I can give you eternal life. You're going to inherit eternal life. It's nothing you can do because you have to inherit it, right? Inheritance doesn't mean you do something. Inheritance means you, its gift is bestowed upon you. How am I inherit eternal life? Gave them the the list. Interesting. Jesus didn't ask him to pray. Jesus didn't ask him to do things that we normally would have done. Somebody come up to him, how do I get eternal life? Oh man, right here, just pray this and do this and see your church. Jesus went right to the heart of the matter. You have idolatry in your heart. You've said that you kept the law of Moses and yet you're empty. So what happens to you do the law of Moses. The law of Moses does not give life. This man had kept it. At least he thought he did regimented. I'm going to keep the law of Moses. And Jesus went right to the heart of the matter. He gave him the law of Moses. He says, I've done this. So this thing you lack, go give all of it. Give it to the poor. You come and follow me. And he went away sad, and he went away sorrowful. He did not come to Jesus. He knew Jesus could give him eternal life, but he didn't. He didn't come to him. He didn't come to the only person that could do it. He couldn't keep the law of Moses Jesus obviously showed him he couldn't because he had an idol, his own money. He lacked life because he lacked Christ. He lacked life because he lacked Christ. How can I acquire eternal life? Come to Jesus. Now, here's a question, Christian. It's very important because Paul is addressing this in a very practical matter. Is eternal life in heaven or on earth? Is eternal life in heaven or on earth? Don't answer at the same time. Is eternal life on earth or in heaven? The answer is both. Surprisingly so, isn't it? What do you mean, Pastor? I thought you just go to heaven after this. Okay, eternal life is not something that clicks on the moment you die. So most people take it. I have eternal life. I'm ready to collect. When that thing clicks and I die, then I'll get it. It doesn't work that way. Eternal life is something you get in the future, but it's something you have now. It's something you have now, and it's something you will enter into eternity. 
Paul said it this way. My friends, my brothers and sisters, it's time to wake up. Why? Because salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Well, what do you mean? Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I thought I already had salvation. Yes, you do, but it's also coming near. You believed, and the more you believe, salvation gets nearer. It's something you already have, but it's something that you will also get. How does that work? I'm confused. These are the wonderful things about Scripture, right? It's holding things in balance. One example would be, is God, our God Almighty, is he one or is he three? He's both. We serve one God, but he's also three persons. How can that be? How can three be one? I guess if you multiply one times one times one, you still get one, right? But you still have three. The tensions of the scripture, holding things in balance. Is eternal life something God gives? Or is it something that we have to continue on believing? It's both, isn't it? According to the Bible, it's something you go on believing, but it's something God gives you. At a, at a moment in time, it's something God gives you, but it's something you have to continue to believe and to do. So these are the balances of Scripture. Eternal life is now, and eternal life is coming. See, the challenge is, most Christians, the challenge is the here and now. One day I'll be there, <laughs> right? When, you know, swing low, swing chariot, come to carry me home. One day it'll be there, yes. But if you think that it's something that you're just going to click over and without ever doing anything about it in your own life in the here and now, then we're seriously mistaken. How do I know this? Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus the Messiah whom he have sent. Christian, do you believe that? By faith and repentance, you have eternal life. That's what the scripture teaches. Jesus told this to his generation. You seek the scriptures, you study them. It's a good thing. Because you think by them you have eternal life. They thought, well, if we just study the Bible, we'll have eternal life. But he says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. See, eternal life is in Jesus. You have Jesus, you have eternal life. When do you have Jesus? Now or later? Now and later. That's right. Right? Now and later. You can have him now by faith, by the Holy Spirit. You can come in a personal relationship with Jesus the Messiah. He will come in you. He will be in you and with you. But then he says, I prepare a place for you. And I'll receive you unto myself. For where I am, you may be there also. It's something that you have, and it's something that you'll get. And now what I mean by practical things, look what Paul says about eternal life in the next few verses. So he says, if you're going to reap of the Spirit, you're going to reap eternal life. How does it look like? And let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while you have an opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You want to know what eternal life looks like? Don't wait until eternity. Don't wait until eternity to do it. Do it now. Eternal life is now and also then. Look at the practical things. You want to reap 
of the Spirit, eternal life? Do this. Reap into others good actions. Reap or sow, I'm sorry, sow into others good actions. What do you mean sow into others good actions? The question has always been, Christians have asked this question from time immemorial, where does good works fit into our faith? If we're saved by faith, you know, by grace through faith, where does good works and good actions fall into this? We're not saved by them, but why does the scripture always encourage us to do if we're not saved by them? See, the world does good works in order to earn something. Christians have been given something, eternal life, a free gift of God, and because we have it, we do good actions because we have them. Not to get it. I'm not trying to get something from God. I am trying to work out the faith that he's put in us. I'm working out the salvation that he's put in us. And you have to work it out, not then, not when it clicks over, now. Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Yes, we believe, but it's coming. So what do we do now? So. So what? S-O-W. So what? Good actions. To whom? Well, he's going to tell us. First of all, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary. Why is this, uh, why is this uh, encouragement there? Because it's so easy to grow weary, is it, in this world? Look at Jesus. He did, for 33 and a half years, he did good. He did real good. He went around doing good, the Bible says. You try to live like Jesus, right, on your own. Do exactly what he did. You're going to grow weary. You're going to grow tired. You're going to grow discouraged. You're going to be like, what's the point? Because this world is like that. This world, it's no good. In this world, it doesn't pay to be good. No amens. Okay. In this world, there's no, it's no point in being good. First of all, if you do it to be appreciated, good luck, right? No one's going to appreciate it. If you do it to get a pat on the back, forget it. If you do it to want to be seen, maybe that's it. But eventually, in this generation, 10 minutes later, no one's going to even know who you are. If you do it for those reasons, and in this world, you're going to grow weary. You're going to grow tired, and you're going to say, what's the point? What's the point? Well, it doesn't pay. It doesn't pay because being good is not being popular. If you do it to be popular, then don't do good. That's not what's going to happen. Second thing is immediate results. Why do we grow weary of doing good? First of all, this world doesn't pay to be good. In this fallen world, being good doesn't pay. And so people, if people do it for that reason, they're going to grow weary. Secondly, we have a curse in our society. Older believers know what we'll be talking about more than younger believers. There were days where you had to cook your food by yourself, on your own. Nowadays, you can drive to get your food that somebody else did and have it within minutes. The only anger we get now is being in the drive-thru too long, right? Instead of, you know, where's the meal? Where's the food? I don't have to, you know, get the wood, you know, burn it up, burn up the wood, get the, get the thing heated up so the, uh, the food can cook. Now we're wondering what happened to the attendant, what happened to the cashier. There was a time like that. Instant coffee. It wasn't like that before. I get a little impatient when coffee's not uh, immediately made. Where's the button? <laughs> I need coffee. Where's that instant button, right? 
instant society, instant things, instant life, instant everything. We have a curse in our society. We want everything instant. I go back to modems, 256K. Now we have, you know, cable, whatever you guys got now, internet, you know, what I don't know what it is. And uh, man, if it doesn't load up in two seconds, we're calling. <laughs> Charter, what's going on with my website? Well, it's not all loading. It's been two seconds. Nothing's happening. Instant society. And then we live in that society. And even without thinking about it, we begin to apply it to our faith and to our God. And we say, God, I've been saved for five minutes. Why haven't you sent me? to the outmost parts of the world and save everyone. Lord, I've been saved one week. I should be teaching. Be better than Pastor Mark up there. Give me a chance. Instant society. Instant things. Now, there's many advantages to instant things, I suppose. You can call somebody and things like that. But we take it into our faith and we want immediate results. And God is not an instant God. God is not going to apply or comply to your instant mentality. Discipleship is not like that. God is not like that. God is not going to do things for you next Thursday, by next Thursday, because you wanted it done. He is going to take his time to do things right. And you want an example? The one up there. A farmer. Is a farmer patient? He has to be. He can't make it go faster. He can plant. He can water. He can stomp on his, you know, he can stomp on the ground and make it, try to make it go faster. And those seeds are not going to go any faster than what they're already determined to go fast. They're going to germinate and they're going to eventually come out and it's time. And I guess being a farmer is really good, isn't it? Because you kind of synchronize your life to God's timing. So does fishing, by the way. By the way, I'm not so good at either one of them. <laughs> you know, because it's like, it, it just brings you, sinks you into God's timing. It's not going to be right away. It's going to take some time. It's going to have, you're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to do some patience on this, right? So when I became a Christian, I wanted to be a missionary within the first year. Boy, was I not ready. I would have destroyed them and me. I'm glad God didn't listen and God waited and waited. And 20-some years later, finally did. Finally did work. God wanted me to go. But it took time. The farmer's patience, the Bible says. Why? Because he can't make the seed. He's dependent on God. can't make the seed go any faster. When you go to the world, this is what happens. The first part of doing good, and this thing is, it's the big part of the being good, right? Be, part, be good to everyone. When you go to the world, we sow. What are we supposed to sow? Good things. The word, good actions, the scriptures, witness to someone. Don't expect them to be saved right away. That doesn't happen sometimes. Now, sometimes it does. Praise the Lord for those immediate results that happen as persons converted. But many times it's witnessing and praying, witnessing and praying and sharing and patience. And, and it doesn't work right away. And you wonder, I don't even know if they get it. But you know what? If you keep doing it, God promises you're going to have a harvest. You go out with the guys. You go out sharing the gospel. right? You go, you go, you go talk to the guys. What happened this week? Nothing. We just shared just a lot of tracks and a lot of words. We saw no one keep doing it. Then the next week, nothing. Next week, nothing. 
Sometime later, maybe somebody comes and says, hey, I became a Christian. Praise the Lord. Those are the wonderful moments. And I know missionaries in China, Russia that have been there. Years, no converts. Years, no salvation. They see nobody come to the Lord. Now, you got Christians in Iran, Christians in China, a bunch of Christians in China, in India. Why? There have been Christians who have been sowing the word for many years. And they haven't grown weary. Now, it does happen, but they have to keep going. Don't be weary of doing good. Jesus went around doing good, didn't he? For 33 and a half years, uh, and a half years. what did it get him? A cross. Naked on a cross, killed. Well, that's, that's the point of being good. Because 40 days later, there were 3,000 Jewish people calling on the name of Jesus being saved. You see how God works? It's not immediate. Even the Son of God had to work in patience and in, in, in knowing that God will have the final say and God will bring the harvest. And that's what a congregation like us is to do. Not be wary of doing good. Don't get tired of it. The world's a tiring place to be at, I guarantee you. Don't grow weary. Secondly, be patient with God's timing. He will make it work. Discipleship takes time. God is patient. So must we. And allow God to do that. But while we're waiting for God's harvest, we are planting, sowing, sowing the good. Now, here's one thing that's interesting. Verse 10. While we have the opportunity, let us do good to all men. The Christian has a big circle of doing good, good actions. Sowing the seed of God's word. To the world, we sow the seed of the gospel. We have good actions. We love them. We're a good testimony to them. We give them the scriptures. We give them the gospel to the world, right? Sow the seed. God will bring a harvest, no doubt. But there is another smaller circle. Did you notice that smaller circle? Do good to all men, but especially to those who are believers, to the household of faith. God zooms in on a very specific people in which God calls us, you and I, to be good to. The world, yes, big circle, do that. But first begin with the household of faith. It says in the scriptures that if a man does not provide, if a person does not provide for his own family, 1 Timothy 5, he does not provide for his own family and does something else, he's worse than an unbeliever. It's true, true things. The Bible tells us that. Now, we have a family. You have a family, I have a family. Family's rather getting rather big. Brothers and sisters in Jesus. That's a family. And if we fail to do that, if we go to the world as, I'm just going to go save the world, and we fail to do first what the Lord says, and that is specific people, a very special group, a very specific calling, that he says, do good to all men, but especially to those who are believers. There's an emphasis there. Why are we to good, be good to believers? Question, Christian, this is where you come in. Why are we supposed to be good to believers, especially to believers? Witness to the lost? Absolutely, Jesus said it. Should be good enough, right? But is the world good to Christians? It's a good reason to be good to Christians, isn't it? The world's not going to be good to you, but I should be good to you. The world's not going to be good to him but you should be good to him because the world will be against him. We're supposed to take care of that. Second of all, the Lord said it, right? The Lord said it. That's good enough. 
But oftentimes, our first duty is neglected, isn't it? The first duty is for believers to take care of one another. And if we fail to do that, we can't go to the world and have a testimony. Focus on the first scope, then go out to the larger scope. Let us do good to all men, especially of those who are believers. We start with believers. We start with brothers and sisters. Learn to be good to them, then go to the world. It's a balance. This is a very specific balance. John Wesley said it better than I could ever say it. Now, hear what John Wesley said? This is so good. We can do a, a sermon on each one of the points. You ready? Do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can at all times that you can to all people that you can as long as you ever can. Is that right? I'll read it again just for emphasis. And if you're bored and sleepy, wake up because we're done. Do all the good you can by all the means you can. That means whatever means God has given you. What's in your hand today? Then use that, right? In all the ways you can. You may be more creative about doing good than I could ever be. In all the places you can. I'm going to go to places that you're not going to go, and you're going to go to places that I'm not going to be able to go. At all the times that you can, which whatever time God's given you, to all the people that you can, any, any people around you today? No? In front of you, in the back of you, around you, right? At all times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. As long as the Lord gives you breath, you're to do this. Let us sow that we may reap. Let us do good to all men, especially of believers. To teachers, yes. And I'm not just saying that for myself. I'm talking about full Christian service ministers, also in full-time ministry, especially missionaries. Sow to the character in your life. Reap of the Spirit. And whatever you sow, that's what you'll reap. But especially take care of those who are the household of faith. That's God's word. That's what God expects from us. That's what God wants us to do. And it's so practical. And you know what we call that? Eternal life. That, my friend, is eternal life. You have it? Display it. Put it into action. And there's some wonderful opportunities God's given you. When people seek to do God's will, he will put those opportunities in front of you so you do them and you glorify his name. Let's pray. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us today, to the reality that we are to do good to all, to those who teach God's word, to those who are in full-time service, missionaries, church-planting missionaries, evangelists. Lord, we're to take care of our own character by sowing to the Spirit eternal life and being worked out in the life of others by doing good to them. Lord, help us to do good to the household of faith. Help us, Lord, to see a need and act on the need. As you give us, Lord, the opportunity, I thank you for the very words of this book, Lord, that is changing us and making us more like Jesus. That's how he lived. That's how he lived out his life every single day, serving you and serving others. 
Lord, thank you to making this very clear to us. We ask you for your Holy Spirit to empower us to do it. Lord, we don't want to do it and strive in the flesh. We want to be compliant to your spirit and your leading. All this we ask, Lord, in Jesus, our Lord. Amen.